Welcome to the December 2010 Respiratory Care Podcast. I'm here with Sarah Fargi. Sarah will read the abstracts and I will provide some commentary. Our first paper this month is Role of Non-Invasive Ventilation in Acute Lung Injury, Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, a Proportion Meta-Analysis by Agarwal. The objective of this study was to assess the efficacy of non-invasive ventilation, NIV, in patients with acute lung injury, or ARDS. The author searched the PubMed and MBASE databases for relevant studies published between 1995 and 2009 and included studies that reported endotracheal intubation rate and or mortality in patients with acute lung injury or ARDS treated with NIV. The search yielded 13 eligible studies, including 540 patients. The intubation rate ranged from 30% to 86%, and the pooled intubation rate was 48%. The mortality rate ranged from 15 to 71%, and the pooled mortality rate was 35%. There was no evidence of publication bias. The authors concluded that, given the 50% NIV failure rate in patients with acute lung injury or ARDS, NIV should be cautiously used in these patients. The role of NIV in the management of acute lung injury and ARDS is controversial. It is certainly not a standard of care to use NIV in these patients. In fact, one might argue against the use of NIV in this patient population. As Keenan suggests in his editorial, we are in desperate need of a randomized controlled trial to inform us of the risks and benefits of NIV in acute lung injury and ARDS. Next, we have the paper by Conduck. Preliminary Report of Laryngeal Phonation During Mechanical Ventilation Via a New Cuffed Tracheostomy Tube. The objective of this study was to evaluate the safety, efficacy, patient tolerance, and patient satisfaction of the Blum Tracheostomy Tube and Speech Cannula, a new device that allows the patient to speak while the tracheostomy tube cuff is fully inflated. In 10 tracheostomized mechanically ventilated patients, the authors recorded ventilator settings and physiologic variables at baseline with the patient's usual tracheostomy tube and then with the Blom tracheostomy tube and the Blom standard non-speech cannula and then using three 30-minute trials of the Blom speech cannula. During the Blom speech cannula trials, the authors assessed the subject's success in phonation. Nine of the ten subjects achieved sustained audible phonation and were very satisfied with the device. The authors concluded that the Blom speech cannula appears to be safe, effective, and well-tolerated in tracheostomized mechanically ventilated patients while maintaining full cuff inflation. As Hoyt points out in her editorial, Patients who tolerate cuff deflation can speak quite well with the right combination of ventilator settings. However, not all patients tolerate cuff deflation. This new device might allow speech in patients who cannot tolerate cuff deflation. The paper, In Vitro Comparison of Four Large Volume Nebulizers in Eight Hours of Continuous Nebulization, is by Berlinski. 
the authors compared the aerosol characteristics, solution output, and albuterol output of four brands of large volume nebulizer. They studied six units of the following nebulizer brands, Airlife, Flow Mist, Heart, and Hope. All of the nebulizers were operated according to the manufacturer's recommendations and connected to 180 centimeters of flexible corrugated tubing. 80 milligrams of albuterol solution was diluted in saline to deliver 10 milligrams per hour. Solution output, solution retained in the tubing, reservoir albuterol concentration, and albuterol output were determined hourly for 8 hours. The ambient and aerosol temperatures were recorded every 30 minutes. Aerosol characteristics were determined by cascade impaction, with aerosol collected between 60 and 70 minutes of operation. All the aerosols had an adequate size for pulmonary deposition. The increase in reservoir albuterol concentration was less than 20% for the first four hours. There were no significant differences in achieving the target albuterol output, but none of the nebulizers achieved the target output during the first hour. Albuterol output was similar between the nebulizers for the first five hours. The Air Life and Hope had a solution output consistent with the manufacturer's specifications. The amount of solution retained in the tubing was greatest with the heart. Aerosol temperature increased in the corrugated tubing but was below the ambient temperature at the patient interface. The authors concluded that the tested nebulizers had similar performance during the first five hours. The nebulizer solution might need to be replaced if treatment is planned for a longer period. Continuous albuterol nebulization has become the standard of care for patients with status asthmaticus. Predictable albuterol delivery is, of course, important for effective therapy. The nebulizers evaluated in this study had similar performance during the first five hours of operation. However, the nebulizer solution might need to be replaced if treatment is planned for a longer period. A low sodium solution for airway care, results of a multicenter trial, is by Christensen. The authors previously described a low-sodium physiologically-based solution for airway care and reported a small randomized trial in neonates which showed trends towards less ventilator-associated pneumonia and less chronic lung injury with the new solution. This study is a multi-center trial of that solution. The authors conducted a before and after study with a parallel control group in four level 3 neonatal intensive care units. During year 1, all four units used saline for airway care. During year 2, one unit used the test solution exclusively, while the other units used saline exclusively. The two study outcomes were ventilator-associated pneumonia and chronic lung disease. During the study period, 1,116 neonates had endotracheal intubation for respiratory management. Of those, 1,029 received the standard saline for airway suctioning, and 87 received the test solution. The unit that used the test solution had a decrease in ventilator-associated pneumonia rate and also had the lowest prevalence of chronic lung disease. The authors concluded that the test solution significantly reduced the ventilator-associated pneumonia and chronic lung disease rates.
Although controversial, normal saline is sometimes instilled into the endotracheal tube to assist in removing thick secretions. These authors report that the low-sodium test solution significantly reduced the rates of ventilator-associated pneumonia and chronic lung disease. Although interesting, an independent, positive, randomized controlled trial may be necessary before widespread acceptance of this technique. Next, we have the paper, Lung Diffusing Capacity in Adult Bronchiectasis, a Longitudinal Study, by King. The objective of this study was to assess the longitudinal decline in diffusing capacity of the lung for carbon monoxide, DLCO, in adult bronchiectasis. 61 subjects had a detailed baseline clinical and laboratory assessment, then were followed regularly with clinical and lung function assessment for a median seven years. Baseline spirometry demonstrated mild obstructive lung disease with a mean FEV1 of 72% of predicted, mean forced vital capacity 87% of predicted, and normal DLCO. There was an accelerated decline in DLCO and DLCO per lung volume over the seven-year period. The median DLCO decline was 2.9% of predicted per year. The median DLCO per lung volume decline was 2.4% of predicted per year. There was a significant relationship between DLCO decline and age and decline in FEV1. Interstitial lung disease is a feature of bronchiectasis, but whether this is associated with a decline in DLCO is not well known. King et al. found a progressive DLCO decline in their cohort of patients with bronchiectasis. The implications of this finding in the care of patients with bronchiectasis remains to be determined. Prolonged Mechanical Ventilation in Massachusetts, the 2006 Prevalence Survey, is by Devo. The authors invited 113 respiratory care managers practicing in acute care hospitals, long-term acute care facilities, and home care companies in Massachusetts to participate in a web-based survey. The responses were matched to their respective institutions, and the results were analyzed according to hospital size, urban or suburban location, and whether the institution was a teaching institution. In December of 2006, there were 817 ventilated patients, of whom 460 met the criteria for prolonged ventilation and 221 met the criteria for home ventilation. Of the 239 patients not at home, 64 were in acute care hospitals, 175 in long-term acute care facilities, and 221 at home. The survey response rate was 86% for acute care hospitals with greater than 400 beds, 48% for acute care hospitals with less than 400 beds, 65% for long-term acute care facilities, and 67% for home care companies. The non-respondents were primarily smaller, suburban, non-teaching hospitals, which have a very low prevalence of prolonged ventilation patients. 
Among the home ventilation patients, the majority had neuromuscular diseases, were less than 65 years old, and were ventilated via tracheostomy tube. The most important limitations to transitioning prolonged ventilation patients to home ventilation appeared to be lack of family and or economic support. The authors concluded that, in Massachusetts, the estimated prevalence of prolonged and home ventilation increased from 2.8 per 100,000 inhabitants in 1983 to 7.1 per 100,000 inhabitants in 2006. The majority of these patients are in long-term acute care facilities, large urban teaching hospitals, and at home. Prolonged mechanical ventilation and home ventilation impose unique challenges on patients, families, and the healthcare system. In the absence of a centralized database to track prolonged and home ventilation, there has been a paucity of prevalence studies and what is known as outdated. At least in Massachusetts, the prevalence of prolonged and home mechanical ventilation appears to be increasing. Although the generalizability of these findings might be questioned, similar trends are likely occurring elsewhere in the United States. Our final original research paper this month is Albuterol Delivery via Intrapulmonary Percussive Ventilator and Jet Nebulizer in a Pediatric Ventilator Model by Berlinski. The authors compared the amount of albuterol captured at the end of the endotracheal tube with an intrapulmonary percussive ventilator IPV, versus a jet nebulizer placed in line in a pediatric ventilator model under various operating conditions. Pediatric ventilation settings were used pressure-regulated volume control mode, respiratory rate 20 breaths per minute, PEEP of 5 centimeters of water, an FiO2 0.4, inspiratory time 0.75 seconds, inspiratory rise time 0.15 seconds, and flow triggering at 3 liters per minute. Aerosol was collected with a filter at the distal end of the endotracheal tube. They tested three IPV units with a drive pressure of 25 centimeters of water and three jet nebulizers at a flow of 6 liters per minute. 5 milligrams of albuterol was diluted in saline and 3 milliliters nebulized with the jet nebulizer and 10 milliliters nebulized with the IPV. They studied tidal volumes of 100 milliliters and 200 milliliters, position in the circuit at the humidifier and at the Y piece, and the IPV easy and hard percussion settings. When positioned at the humidifier, the IPV delivered significantly less albuterol than the jet nebulizer. When the IPV was moved to the Y piece, the albuterol delivery was similar to that of the jet nebulizer at either position. Neither increasing the tidal volume nor increasing the IPV settings increased the albuterol delivery. The authors concluded that the IPV delivered less albuterol than the jet nebulizer when placed at the humidifier. IPV was equivalent to jet nebulizer when placed at the Y piece. Doubling the tidal volume did not increase aerosol delivery. Inline administration of bronchodilators is widely used in pediatric patients receiving mechanical ventilation. Little is known about aerosol delivery with IPV. These data will be of interest to those who use IPV in pediatric patients. 
The special article, Documentation Issues for Mechanical Ventilation in Pressure Control Modes, is by Chatburn. As hospitals begin to implement electronic medical records, the inadequacies of legacy paper charting systems will become more evident. One area of particular concern for respiratory therapists is the charting of mechanical ventilator settings. Our profession's lack of a standardized and generally accepted taxonomy for mechanical ventilation leaves us with a confusing array of terms related to ventilator settings. Such confusion makes database design impossible for information technology professionals and is a risk management concern for clinicians. Of particular note is the complexity related to set airway pressures when using modes whose primary control variable is pressure versus volume. The authors review the clinically relevant issues surrounding documentation of the ventilator-patient interactions related to airway pressure and provide suggestions for a standardized vocabulary. Chatburn eloquently explores documentation issues for mechanical ventilation and pressure control modes. I agree that our profession's lack of generally accepted taxonomy for mechanical ventilation leaves us with a confusing array of terms related to ventilator settings. This has particularly become an issue with the recent generation of ventilators. Of particular note is the complexity related to set airway pressures when using modes whose primary control variable is pressure, such as airway pressure release ventilation. We are pleased to publish an evidence-based clinical practice guideline, inhaled nitric oxide for neonates with acute hypoxic respiratory failure. We also publish two case reports. The first is airway dehiscine after lung transplantation in a patient with cystic fibrosis by Hayes. The other is isolated tuberculous liver abscess in a patient with asymptomatic stage 1 sarcoidosis by Sarkar. The teaching case of the month is ultrasound-guided arterial puncture by Haynes. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.